So I've got a, um, a question. There, there, maybe you you run this scenario um, sometimes. Is that uh, that what are what is a question that I will ask God? You know, when I finally see Him. You know, when I'm when I'm there. You know, at the pearly gates, like those exist. Um, and I have some questions. And He says, "What did, what did you wonder?" Um, in my hypothetical scenario here, I have, I have a handful of questions. One of those uh, that I want to ask is one of my like dying questions is, if you had such a beautiful message, God, why did you give it to such terrible people? Uh, why, why did you create this thing of, of, of sinners, wrap it up in this snowball and be like, there, that's the church. Go make known my manifold wisdom. Like this is just such a, such a strange thing to me. It's a, I guess it's part of what Paul calls the mystery. Um, yeah, and so that, that some of our text here uh, comes off of this. In Ephesians, we've been looking at this idea of this new self. We've been looking at this idea of, um, of putting off the old self, being renewed, putting on the new self. In Ephesians, God reveals to us his redemptive plan for eternity as it is made known through the church in our everyday life. A simple way of saying this that we have here uh, in our, on a sermon slide right there, handy dandy, all of Christ for all of life. So it's this vastness of Christ for our everyday life. In Ephesians 3.10, we read uh, this. We read, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is, that is, the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. Everything about God will be made known to these spiritual beings that are out there in all of these heavenly places. Wow, that's, that's inspiring. That's a, that's a fantastic story. And he says, and how is this going to be done? Through the church. That's incredible. Uh, the church is the embodiment of the plan of God, the plan of God in his love, in his justice, in his mercy, his redemptive plan, which he, chapters 1 and 2, has so sovereignly orchestrated, all of that will be made known through the way in which the church interacts with itself, with God, and with the world around it. This is how we do this. This is taking the truths of God and embodying them in a people so that the world might be able to not simply read about and know God, but to be able to experience God and his world. So uh, last week, this week, and next week are, are somewhat of kind of their own little like mini series within the series of Ephesians. Here's maybe a framework. I really enjoy the framework of scripture and how the author has kind of revealed to us in a very digestible way uh, his message. Uh, and so the spirit through Paul has kind of given us this, this, this little bit of a, a layout. In chapter 4, we read that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Now, last week, we focused on something more of an, an internal walk. We saw that, the, uh, we saw that uh, in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, how we are to individually live out our newness and in our own, uh, in our own minds and in our hearts. We said, put off the old way, be renewed, put on. And we do that with Christ as the foundation because it says uh, in Jesus, there is truth in Jesus. With Jesus as our truth, it enlightens our understanding and it softens our hearts. So internally, that's where we were last week. Now, this week, we're going to focus on something a little bit more corporate called the church and our interactions and in our, in our relationships with one another in the church. And we're going to see how those might glorify Christ. And now next week, uh, in Ephesians, uh, what is it, 5, 3 through 14, we're going to be urged to walk as children of light as we reflect Christ in our community around us. So uh, 
a very simple way of uh, saying our urge for today. It'll be a little bit deeper than this, but it's simple and rememberable. Uh, uh, put on the love of Christ. If we are putting off the old way, being renewed, what is it that we're putting on? The love of Christ. He's going to say, walk in a way of Christ. I love this language of walking in Paul. Uh, he says, walk in a way that's worthy. You're going to walk, but how do you walk? Walk, uh, walk uh, not as the Gentiles do, and now we're going to get walk, uh, walk in love, and next week we're going to say walk as children of light. So your outline is this. Uh, put on the love of Christ. Point one, don't give the devil ground. Point two, don't cause the spirit to grieve. And point three, rather imitate God. So, let's get on with this. Point one, don't give the devil ground. Verse 25 through 27. Oh, I guess I need to, need to note this. Uh, just as far as this goes, uh, the, the passage is kind of done... Um, Paul writes this uh, inductively, and so inductively means he puts the point at the end. So in each of these sections here, this is going to be point one, uh, uh, don't give the devil ground, verses 25 through 27, the, the, the final verse there is actually the point. And so he's going to say, here are some things that are happening, but the point is, don't give the devil ground. Then he's going to say, here are some things that are happening, the point is, don't, uh, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And he's going to say some things and then say, the point is, uh, is to, uh, to walk, in, uh, to walk uh, in the love of Christ. And so it's inductive in that he's revealing the answer at the end, but because it's easier for us now, I'm just going to give the answer up front, and then we'll see how that works out. So here's 25 through uh, 27. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of, uh, of another. Uh, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. So here, we'll take verse 27. Stop there. That's going to be our first part of this. Uh, give no opportunity to the devil. That's the point. The NIV translation reads, do not give the devil a foothold. And so, uh, interestingly, the word Paul uses for opportunity or foothold is the, is the Greek word tapos. It's like the beginning of the word uh, topology, the study of spatial relationships, uh, topography, the arrangements of, of things, you know, in, in a system here. And so it's talking about space or place. Do not give the devil space. Do not give the devil place. And that's where you get kind of how I'm saying this. Don't give the devil ground. Why do I say don't give the devil ground? Because it kind of brings us into kind of a foreshadowing of, of Ephesians 6, where there's this spiritual war happening, where, is it, where, where the devil is, is on attack, and he wants to take ground for us. He still thinks the battle it can be won. The battle has been won. We just don't give we just have to stand our ground at the moment. So uh, Ephesians uh, 6, 11, you can follow along on the screen. It reads, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Don't give the devil ground. It's as though we've got this, you know, this front that, that God has, has, has put out, and he said, you're over here, you're over here, you're over here, you're over here, and we don't want to give that weak side to the devil. Don't give him ground. He's going to find that foothold, that opportunity, that space. He wants to find that. And when he finds that, the devil is not dumb. He is excellent at his work. He is, he is better than you or I at our work. Uh, and, and he'll find that, and he will exploit that, and he will gain ground on you. Don't give him that opportunity. So then we have to ask the question going backwards. Uh, so how do we give him that opportunity? There are two ways. By speaking falsely and by harboring anger. Verse 25. 
Verse 25 says that having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So how, uh, this is kind of uh, using some of this language, speak the truth. It kind of harkens back to this, this prophecy of Zechariah uh, 8, where this new community, this new, uh, this new kingdom of God will be, be about. And one of the ways that this new kingdom operates, this new community operates, is by speaking truth. It literally says, you speak truth to one another. And so maybe, maybe he's going back to uh, Paul's uh, saying, hey, this is the fulfillment of what Zechariah was saying. There will be a community that comes that speaks truth to one another. But even so, why would putting away falsehood not give the devil ground because he is the father of lies? We read that in Scripture. The father of lies is fed by lies. And when we lie, we're using the armor of the father of lies, or we're using the ammo of the father of lies, and we're jumping sides, and we're attacking. It's treason <laughs> in military terms. Well, there's another reason why, probably the better reason why, is because we've already read this up in verse uh, 21, because the truth is in Jesus. Why do we speak truth to one another? Not just, not, not saying we say true things about Jesus. That's not what we mean when we say truth. We say, we say truth in all matters. Yes, I did that, and it was wrong. Yeah, I didn't listen. No, I didn't do that. Yeah, you probably need to be corrected in what you do. We say truthful things because it shows a reflection of Jesus Christ. Truth is in Jesus. When we have all the truth out there, then we can rightly assess what is the truth, and it's going to fall on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Oh, there is a redemptive plan, and we need Christ. Why do we speak truth? Why do we put away falsehood, even little white lies? Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one body. He says, so one way that we don't give the devil ground is we put away falsehood and speak the truth. We speak Christ. Verse 26, he says, there's another one, and this is probably one that he develops a lot more in this passage, is he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There are two parts to this. This first part of the, of, of the verse there in verse 26 is be angry and do not sin. So I guess this is a moment where all of you who are angry, listen up, <laughs> uh, and all of you who are uh, passive-aggressive, uh, elbow the guy or gal next to you who is angry so that they can listen up, and, uh, uh, because this is, this is going to be, at some level, all of us. <laughs> be angry and do not sin. There is anger that is appropriate for Christians. It is an anger towards sin and not the sinner. That desires, the root of, that, that desires to root out sin immediately. And this kind of anger is different than anger at the sinner and a desire to exact judgment and wrath on them immediately. We want to root out the sin. We don't want to get rid of the sinner. See, uh, when you do this, when your anger is at the sin... As opposed to the sin, you are following the way of Jesus. Jesus was angry in this way. Uh, in Mark 3, we get a great example of this. Uh, the Pharisees, they're so prideful and arrogant and just want to do things their way. They confront Jesus regarding healing on the Sabbath. And they basically ask this question. So, Jesus, which one is it? How should we live? By the law or by love? Uh, and they, which one do we do? And Jesus gives us this. You can follow you know, along on the screen. Mark 3, 4, and 5, he says, and, he, and Jesus said to them, 
Is it lawful on the Sabbath to go do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And I'll add, they were silent because they were so prideful and stubborn that they didn't want to admit that maybe they were wrong and they had to change. Maybe that law was the point of, or maybe that love was the point of the law and they were being a little too legalistic like you and I. But they were silent like you and I so often are. And he looked around at them with anger, right there. And he looked at them with anger. He did three things. Looked at them with anger. He grieved the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So the man stretched it out and his hand was restored. We can have anger as Jesus did. So long as, we'll get to this next point, uh, so long as we also grieve the sin in someone's heart. We can be angry at the sin to get rid of it, but we need to be working toward getting rid of it not toward punishing the person. Clinton Ardle, uh, wait, sorry, uh, and while anger should be felt and expressed on certain occasions, it should not be an ongoing characteristic of one's life. So we have this idea of be angry and do not sin, but now here's the second half of that verse. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There is a bad way of, uh, or a sinful way of anger. When Paul says, do not sin, he recognizes that there is both a kind of anger and an intensity that constitutes sinful behavior. Now, this is a quote from, from a commentary um, uh, by Clinton Arnold. It's so fantastic. It's, it's so uh, wonderful. Uh, this is what he says. Insofar that this, this, sinf- uh, this intensity of anger, this kind of anger constitutes sinful behavior insofar as believers express anger out of sinful motives, they're engaging in sinful behavior. And you see right there, I jumped over a little bit there to qualify it. Insofar as believers express anger out of sinful motives, and these are those sinful motives, such as injured pride, entirely relational between you and I, envy, entirely relational between you and I, and spite, entirely relational between you and I. You get that? When our anger is not at the sin itself, but is at the the vehicle of that sin, our relationship, when we harbor anger at that, when we are moved out of injured pride, envy, spite, someone says something to you that you don't like, someone slights you, someone makes you the butt of their joke, and all of a sudden you flare up. They're just attacking your pride. You may envy what they have, their, their job, their family, their wife, their kids. And maybe out of spite, you just want them to go down in flames. Clint Arnold says, this kind of anger is never appropriate. And is what Paul is referring to in verse 31, which we'll also get to. Allowing anger to endure over time, for whatever reason, puts one into a vulnerable situation. That is, your unresolved Latent anger gives the devil ground. And he's, and he's crouched for the tack, and nightfall's coming. Don't give the devil ground. Point two, don't cause the Holy Spirit to grieve. This is verses uh, 28 through 30. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, uh, for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So as we kind of flip the order here, the point is do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now this is verse uh, 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It can be restated this way. Do not cause the Holy Spirit to grieve. Charles Spurgeon defines uh, the Spirit's grief, his exemplary grief, uh, as this. He says, it is a sweet combination of anger and love. It is anger, but all the gall is taken from it. Love sweetens the anger and turns the edge of it, not against the person, but against the offense. He goes on to illustrate um, in his uh, just fantastic sermon, uh, to illustrate this kind of grief as an expression of the Father's love. He says, uh, in the same offense, uh, uh, the same offense is observed by a loving father, and he is grieved. There is anger in his bosom, but he is angry, but uh, he is angry and he sins not, for he is angry against my sin. And yet there is love to neutralize and modify the anger toward me. Instead of wishing me ill as the punishment of my sin, he looks upon my sin itself as being the ill, and he grieves to think that I am already injured from the fact that I have sinned. Oof, that's amazing. He grieves to think that I am already injured from the fact that I have sinned. That is our real relationship with God. That is our real relationship with the Spirit. I don't feel like that is my real relationship with many people around me. I do not reflect God that way. That I grieve them. When they do something against me, rather than be offended, I grieve that they are stuck in sin and they are causing an offense. Let's pick this caps. Paul's urge to turn toward lives of generosity and building up because in these there is callous anger toward each other that has nothing to do with the gospel. So he's going to give us two examples of how we cause the spirit to grieve, to, to almost lament the sin in us, to pity, to hurt because of the sin from which we are acting. The spirit grieves Uh, the, the Spirit grieves when we attack, when we steal, whether that be verse 28, each other's possessions, or verse 29, each other's reputation. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This reinforces uh, the, uh, one of the commandments but kind of if we think about this idea of the thief and the work of the thief, the work of a thief is, is done in secret. It, at some level, it's, it's, it's violent. Um, it's malicious, definitely, uh, and it's for self-gain. Now, now, we think about this. This is not how you learn Christ. This is, this is the way of the, the old self. This is futility. It's secret, violent, malicious, and self-gain. What does Christ do? Christ, rather than, 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 or rather than taking, gives Rather than doing it secretly, does it publicly on a cross for all to see. Rather than doing it uh, uh, violently, he does it through faith as just a gift handing it out. He took the violence so that we didn't. Rather than doing it maliciously, he does it with the intent to heal. Or rather doing it for self-gain, 
He takes all the disgrace. He is forsaken so that he might have something to give to us. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, stealing, uh, this doesn't just involve, um, at the most basic level, toys at playtime, taking someone's stuff, although toys at playtime is sometimes just like an ignorant learning community and it's not actually maliciously stealing things. Um, so not taking, simply taking people's stuff, toys at playtime. It's not uh, it's stealing their answers uh, for homework. It's not only, uh, but, but also encompasses the idea of, of stealing their friends, of stealing other people's news, of stealing other people's glory. It goes to much more than that. I could sit there and not take any of your stuff and still steal, steal from you when I do these things. We'll pause there and come back. Uh, verse, verse 29, because we go from not simply stealing uh, of, of the things that I've just said, we also go to this, this, this deeper level, a stealing their reputation. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may gra- uh, give grace to those who hear it. And a different expression of steal, that is stealing the dignity and the glory from another. Corrupting talk rottens relationships. The word here is the same word that's used to describe rotten fruit. <laughs> so uh, we get a wonderful graphic illustration that I can't avoid. Um, when you speak ill of another, or maybe I would say rather we use that term, speak ill of another, I would say speak ill against another because you're never speaking ill in favor of another. You're always just speaking ill against. It is an attack against someone. You speak ill against someone. It's as though you're, you're, you're at the dinner table of community and you just like vomit up all this rotten fruit. Kind of spoils the party. Uh, kind, of, kind of ruins it. I, I think in America, in, uh, in 21st century America, uh, we don't do this so well. So someone does this at the dinner table. Someone does this in a casual conversation. Someone does this in the, in the drop-off at school or, 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 or daycare or in the, in the foyer before or after, you know, the church or, or just in these passing, in the mall, in the, wherever you're at. You just kind of like, you know, there you go. That person is slandered. That person is, you know, defamed. Um, and, and, and it's for some reason we do that and we feel this like uh, awkwardness but somehow, I don't know how we did this, um, actually, the person who, who pulls the party foul here is the one who corrects them, right? Like, oh, wait, they're not as bad as you think. Maybe you shouldn't talk about them that way. Like, the guy who stands up and says that usually is the one who's the jerk. Uh, you're just too pious. You're trying to make me feel bad. No, why, why not? Like, we should be that. If we love each other, we should be able to say, hey, you chose to. It's not like you ate some bad stuff and threw it up. Like, you're choosing to puke on this thing. You're choosing to present all this rotten fruit here. Please, don't do that. We don't want to do it. No, no, no. The rotten fruit goes in the trash. Nail the rotten fruit to the cross. Why don't we just give each other Christ? And maybe this could be a time for me to say, uh, why don't we be a people that model this? Our community doesn't do this well. Our culture doesn't do this well. What if they said, those Parkview people... Like, somehow, they shape a wonderful encouragement of anyone. I've never heard them talk bad about anyone. Now, okay, first hypocrite. (laughs) That'd be incredible. That's convicting. In both of these examples, though, Paul isn't just, you know, wagging his finger at him, saying, how dare you, shame on you. 
He provides a practical plan for putting off, being renewed, and putting on. I mean, look at these verses. He doesn't have to say everything. He could say, don't steal, but work hard. <laughs> don't talk trash. Don't, don't vomit rotten fruit, but be encouraging. He could have said that, but he uses a whole bunch of other words because he's given us a process. It says, put off stealing and corrupting talk. Be renewed with gratitude of Christ, with the generosity of Christ. And in, being the, in, and in that renewal, then put on the honest work and the words of building up. Go through the motions. Do the work so that you can help someone else go through the motions and do the work of discipleship. Don't just cut corners for your own glory. There's so many opportunities where, where you know, guys even, even 10 years out or, or 20, 30 years out from me have given me just practical life hacks, just how to live life. And in that, there has been a beautiful weaving of the gospel. So I'm not just saying, just read your Bible a bunch and then look for people who you can raise up as disciples. Just, whatever you're doing, do it with the, a gospel intention. And then as you help people live lives that are better lives, you can also explain to them the reasoning for your intentionality, the ultimate purpose, that budgeting well gets you to a place where you can give lavishly and help people who are doing great things. That disciplining your children this way or that way will remove the element of shame or, or vindictiveness because Christ wants it that way. There's a great way where we can partner together with each other just in regular life things. Do the work honestly so that you can share with others. And as you do it, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to have anger, but don't let it turn into corrupting talk. Don't just get all mad and go puking on everything. Spurgeon says this. When we see anger in another, we at once begin to feel hostility. Anger begets anger, but grief begets pity. And pity is next akin to love. Oh, and we are to love those to whom we have caused grief. Sorry, that's a typo there. And we are to feel grief of ourselves when we have caused others to grieve on our behalf. Point three. Rather, Imitate Christ. Don't give the devil ground. Uh, don't give the devil ground. Don't cause the Holy Spirit to grieve, but rather imitate God. Wow. <laughs> That's huge. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the end of this, the point of this is be, imitate, uh, be imitators of God. I am going to go through this, uh, verse 31. I'm just going to go right through this uh, to the end of our time. He says, put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Wow, that's a, that's a mouthful. Uh, a really nasty mouthful, too. Um, so what, what is this? I'm going to go very quickly through these things because it, it's more or less uh, an anatomy of our anger. 
maybe you, you can help, uh, if you would do well to listen to this and say, how does this affect me? Not think of the caricature of your wife or your husband or your boss or whatever it is that you just think that they're the wicked one. Okay, um, we all think that, and that move from that, you. So as I get, do these, run a diagnostic on yourself. Uh, uh, commentator Andrew Lincoln, he describes bitterness as this. He says, bitterness is hard-heartedness that harbors resentment about the past. Bitterness is hard-heartedness that harbors resentment about the past. When I read that, I realized that I'm actually a pretty bitter person. I never thought I was. <laughs> And then I kind of cried there on Tuesday morning in Kapana. It was embarrassing. Um, yeah, good old bitter pastor. Um, a hard-heartedness that harbors resentment about the past. Yeah, so when the sun goes down on your anger, it doesn't reset. It hardens. Now we're getting to the idolatrous point that is the root of our anger. We love ourselves and we hate anyone who doesn't and we become bitter. He says, put away wrath and anger. A wrath and anger, it's, it's so sweet how the, how the Bible actually uses this. Uh, wrath and anger are, are oftentimes in a playful way, uh, playful way, uh, uh, exchanged. Uh, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the wrath of man, the anger of, of man in this really poetic fashion. Yeah, not playful, poetic is the word I mean. Uh, way in which it kind of confuses in a way you and I confuse who's to be angry and who's to have the wrath. Am I supposed to embody God's wrath or my own nasty, prideful anger? And, 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 and it sounds, as I've set it up, like that's a very simple thing. Uh, oh yeah, obviously, I need to get rid of my anger and let God execute his wrath, right? But no, we pick that up and we take that wrath and we execute it on people who have offended us. Uh, anger begets anger and hostility and we go back and forth because we want to be God. There's a, there's a Christian philosopher, uh, uh, Miroslav Volf, who he talks about it this way. He says, in order for you to, to, to reciprocate that anger, in order for you to feel okay as a Christian for, for belittling and, and punishing and, and stepping in the place of the judge and, and, and executing that justice and the wrath of God on someone else, I mean, last week I said you have to have a callous heart. There is some of that. Uh, but he says, what you have to do is you have to say, I am holy. I am the, 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 the standard of holiness. And therefore, I am also right because you and I are always right in our own mind. Anyone who disagrees with me is not simply wrong, but because I myself am holy, they are also wicked. And if wicked, it is my Christian duty to punish them. It might not be a maneuver you thought you do, but we all do it. We get angry. We don't settle it. We get bitter because we let the sun go down. And then this anger and wrath comes out in a way where we assume the moral decrees and judgments on who is right and who is wicked. And then we take this into the arena of relationships. It says, uh, then, uh, what is it? Let all bitterness, so we're all the way down to clamor at this point. Uh, let, uh, get rid of the clamor. Clamor uh, is strange language for yelling. Uh, it's just yelling, shouting, arguments this way. 
Uh, and then there are kind of two ways of doing this, this external, uh, aggressive way of doing this. This is a might-makes-right approach to, of proclaiming your power as the source of truth. And so you think, uh, if, I just tell, if I just yell at you, if I intimidate you, if I bully you, then I don't have to provide reasons for my actions. You just have to submit to my perceived power. And if you're someone who does this, here's a nice little, little, little red flag here. If you notice that people go quiet around you, it's because they just don't want the fight. Because they know you're going to fight. Because you clamor. Now, on the other side of this, he says, get rid of slander and malice. Uh, malice is malicious intent and talk. And so this, uh, in contrast uh, with the approach of yelling, this is the more passive-aggressive battle royale uh, way of to claim power over others. As though you're running around the fight, not actually engaging in the fight. Maybe you're thinking, if I cut everyone else down so that I'm the only one left at the end of this fight, then I win, right? And I, I used to watch professional wrestling all the time. This is, such, wow, there was a confession. Um, <laughs> uh, and they do a battle royale, and the last guy standing wins. Um, just go stand in the corner and let everyone duke it out and walk out and be the winner. We do that. Feed him a false truth about our brother. Oh, yeah, I think he's actually being nasty. You go take care of him. <laughs> They're both down. Slander and malice. At this point in the passage, wow, it's heavy, but it's, it's the turn here. At this point in the passage, we can, we can reinsert Paul's reminder from, from verse 20 up above, and he says, put away all of these things. That's not how you learn Christ. This is why we put to death these things. That's not how you learn Christ. So how did we learn Christ? What do we know of Christ? He says, rather, as he continues reading here, um, where are we at here? Uh, verse 32. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, as Christ forgave you. He says, be kind, be good and benevolent towards one another. He says, be tender-hearted. Now, this is a great one. Uh, be tender-hearted. Literally, the, the, the Greek here is um, have soft guts, uh, which is kind of strange. Have soft guts. It's, it's, it's as though, you know, you're watching, you know, that movie that something awful happens, and you feel for the person, and here comes the term that we use in English, and it's gut-wrenching. Have that. When my brother or sister does wrong to me, it should be gut-wrenching. Oh, they're stuck in their sin. Uh, Spanish is helpful here. Spanish is a much more emotional language than, than, uh, than English. Uh, when you apologize in Spanish, you say, lo siento, which does not mean, uh, I'm sorry. It means, I feel it. I feel it. And if we're kind and we're tenderhearted, it makes sense that we'll be forgiving. And this isn't just a, a normal kind of forgiveness. This is a benefit-of-the-doubt forgiveness. This is a you-are-not-your-sin kind of forgiveness. This is a you-are-not-a-lost-cause forgiveness. This is enduring, steadfast love kind of forgiveness. And so here's the big point of this passage. Uh, we can't do this on our own. We can't do this without the renewal plan of our loving God made real in Christ and put into effect through His Spirit. 
left to ourselves, neither you or I actually want to choose good. Uh, For example, when you wished you would have said certain things that were super nasty but not professionally appropriate or spiritually appropriate, and you, you, you run your mouth in the car on the way home, evidence right there. You don't want to choose the right, because that was more fun. That's why we need the good news of Jesus Christ. So we get, be imitators of God. And then what does it say there? I love this. Uh, Be imitators of God as your best option. Be imitators of God uh, as, as, as your improvement plan, your spiritual improvement plan. You see, if we were just imitators of God because we just need to learn this way, uh, then we're reducing the imitation as our best option. When imitation of God is honing in on the exactness of how we walk in love. Don't just try and, and, and outsource it until you actually, don't fake it until you make it in your love, but be specific in how Christ loves. That is, walk in grieving love that rightly sets its anger on sin with a loving, restorative mindfulness of words to build up the other Christians. It says, be imitators of God as beloved children because you aspire to the worth of a God who is worthy. You want to be like dad. That's why you do that. Not because dad's going to do the work for you for a while until you're able to. You want to be like that, so go. Put in the work. We are kind because Christ is kind. We are tender-hearted because Christ is tender-hearted. We are forgiving because Christ is forgiving. And even while hanging on the shameful cross, being mocked with clamor and slander and malice as the one who thought he was the king of the Jews. And Jesus, even while hanging on the cross, who was told he can't even save himself. Jesus says this, Luke 23, 34. He said, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right there, they are not their sin. Forgive them, they know not what they do. Even more, he says, they are ignorant in their sin. They're not even aware of the fact that they're, being, that they're sinning. They know not what they do. But even so, the rest of the verse is just excruciating. And they, you and I, continue to cast lots, divide up the garments. They just don't even care that the forgiveness happened. Oh, we are like them. So be imitators of God because we, aspire to this, because we aspire to this loving God who loves us as his beloved children. Be imitators of Christ because through faith, through faith as Ephesians has very clearly told us, we become one with Christ. Therefore, we must act like Christ. So I'll run through uh, three, four different uh, quick applications, questions for you. This is a lot. How do we digest it? How do I def- identify if my anger, uh, how do I identify my anger and put it away by nightfall? I think, the, I think the key is to know yourself. Spend time with your anger. It's not fun, but spend time with your anger. Track the symptoms. Identify your triggers. Diagnose the causes. You track the symptoms. Uh, ask questions like, uh, when can I tell that I'm getting angry? What do I do? 
how does my tone change? And oftentimes, even more painful, ask someone in love to tell you to observe it and tell you. And then do something about it. Track the symptoms. Maybe identify triggers. Uh, are there certain topics, personalities, or situations that trigger my anger more quickly? How will I make sure that I have an advocate or I'm held accountable around my triggers? Track the symptoms, identify the triggers, diagnose the causes. The key is not to get rid of your circumstances or your situations. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but that's what we do 99% of the time. If I change my situation, I change my relationships, I change whatever it is, everything else is a cause to all of my anger, you've got to treat your nasty heart with Christ. Put off, be renewed, put on. And that's nice going forward, but what if I haven't put my anger away? Uh, the good news is there's forgiveness. The bad news is the morning didn't reset the problem. It simply hardened it. And the hard news is you and I need to address our anger ASAP. As though the nightfall is the deadline. With that kind of urgency. And it takes a lot of humility to enter this process. So, how do I identify my anger and put it away? You have to know yourself. How do we move on, though? How do I imitate God? Well, you have to know God. He reveals himself, not only in his character and his plan, but he also in his interactions with normal people. There's this, we can learn of God's plan. We can learn of his character. These are huge things. But we get time after time that God is a relational God, and we can read how he interacts with people. I mean, I'm just going through just this, this fast list of how Jesus alone, not God, but Jesus, interacts with people. All the different kinds of people he interacts with are a lot like the people that I interact with on a day, uh, on a given day or a week. He interacts with arrogant people. He interacts with the devil himself. He interacts with disciples with left-outs, with his family, with miracle-seeking masses. Read who Jesus is and ask, what would I do in this situation to show people Christ? Know yourself. Know God. How do I turn my anger to grief and my grief to love? You need to know others. But you can't on your own if you're listening for your own terms. You must listen to them with the ears of Christ. You must listen to them with the ears of Christ. What does Christ need to do in their life? How are they blind to the truth that is in Christ? What is their next step to understanding Christ more deeply? So, my question, uh, how is the wisdom of God made known It's made known in the church as we put on the love of Christ in our everyday relationships with one another. Brothers and sisters, that's a lot. Let's turn to our God in prayer that he might help us. God, we need your help. <laughs> Whether we knew it or not, <laughs> we have some level of anger. And whether we, don't have, whether we have anger or not, we definitely have some level of pride. Forgive us. Heal us. Renew us. Give us a desire, a conviction, and a right fear of you that we might go ahead not proclaiming our truths, 
but Christ is truth. We pray that your Spirit would be with us to help us to understand how to apply this. It is, it is so difficult. But even in those areas where we might say it is difficult, I pray that you just give us the simplicity of humility. We're prideful. We love ourselves and we hate people who don't love us. I pray that you strip that from the people of North Campus. I pray that you make us a pleasing aroma in the, in, in the area around us, a very unique, pleasing aroma because we are a people who deal with anger quickly. We are a people who speak encouragement to each other. We are a people who stop and rightly place the rotten fruit of conversation at the foot of the cross. Give it to you and I turn and give people Christ. Give us better love. Give us better patience. Give us right grief of one another when we sin against each other. Thank you that you make these things possible to us spiritually in reality. Thank, the, thank you that you invite us, a big sinful mess <laughs> as the church, to grow in the daily experience of the gospel.